Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, May 20th. Glad to have you with us. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, uh, we have Doug, Erica, and Tiffany. Hey, guys. Hi. Hello. Hey. So we're missing Gabby and Elliot today, so we, we wish them well and hope everything is, is going all right, uh, and they'll be back with us uh, next week. Um, but uh, today, uh, we are going to be connecting the happy dots. Happy, happy, joy, joy. <laughs> <laughs> <Lighten> it up. <laughs> Hooray! Yeah. After, our, uh, after our heavy heavy topic uh, last week, we decided to kind of go to the other side of the spectrum and see if we couldn't find some happy news. And we did manage to find some, which is nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Our show will so be 10 minutes were... today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's all. Goodbye. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. Keep your chin up. Goodbye. Friday. <laughs> <laughs> so we got a few different topics today. We have some silly stories. Um, uh, some meaning, some dream meanings. Going to talk about a little bit of dream interpretation, um, life improvement remedies, uh, benefit of uh, social networks, not not Facebook. I mean, the literal interpretation <laughs> of social networks. Actual um, human interactions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and a few other things. So, uh, I guess let's start off with a. Uh, <clears throat> Actually, I think I'm going to start with uh, with this one about um, it's not you know not health and wellness related, but it was just funny because we were talking about this before the show that uh, there is a website called Maple Match MapleMatch.com. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are single and you fear a Donald Trump presidency, there is a website that will set you up with a Canadian uh, so that you can get out of the country. it's kind of health and wellness it is i guess yeah it's 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 kind of like if you you really think that (laughs) donald trump is probably bad for your health so to escape that um insidious uh drain upon your health there's there's a solution for that it's marry a canadian canadians yep (laughs) save yourself some stress by getting out of the country they said that the after Super Tuesday, searches for how to move to Canada spiked three hundred and fifty percent. Yeah, that's yes. amazing. Why don't they have one for Hillary though? I mean, that would be the same situation. Seriously, yeah. yeah. I don't know who would be worse. At least Donald Trump fits the whole. American consumerism excess reality show hoo-ha that's going mm. on. Hillary, I don't know, she's from the bowels of hell. <laughs> Tiffany, <laughs> Pretty you, much. You didn't know Hillary Clinton is the most progressive feminist ever in the history of female kind? Oh, oh my really? God. I thought that was, yeah. That's not a happy dot. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes, You're losing Keeping the on focus. the happy side here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one thing so I found you- funny about this site was that it, apparently, a- according to the article, um, they've already attracted 4,200 signups, and 70% of them ca- are Canadian, which is really weird oh. to me. It seems like there's a, a whole dearth of Canadian uh, 
individuals out there who are looking to hook up with Americans, or maybe Canadians are just desperate in general and just want to get married. <laughs> I think it's just because you're so helpful. Canadians are really helpful. <laughs> 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 like, oh, I can help. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How can I help? <laughs> well, there's another whacked out dating site called Wide Awake Dating, I think, for conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah. To get together. And one of the pictures on their site was two people holding hands wearing tinfoil hats. <laughs> nice. That's great. Well, they, uh, let's see. What else do we have here for silly stories? Um, this one now... Uh, it, it, it had a it had a negative outcome, so we will get to that in the interest of full disclosure. However, the initial part uh, just kind of showed the the idiocracy of uh, of people these days, or some people that in uh, in Yellowstone. Now, if our listeners didn't see this article, uh, tourists put a bison calf in their car because they thought it was cold. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just. And didn't they drive it to the ranger station and demand to talk to the ranger? Uh, because, yeah. Because the bison was cold. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. they think that the bison just come out for photo ops during the day, and then they go back home to their heated cabins. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they They're completely they were doing... incapable of surviving cold. They thought they were doing a helping service. Maybe they're Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> I think they were hubrids because they obviously have no idea who's working on this planet. Animals live yeah, outside. That's, that's kind of what they do. I mean, it's supposed to show like how out of touch the average person is with nature and how they don't really have two firing neurons to kind of connect those dots like they live outside guys it's okay it's not cold yeah yeah uh, i don't know it's hard to even get into like i i, I would actually be curious just morbid curiosity to talk to that person yeah. and say you know what like what was the thought process that led you up to that but maybe they uh wouldn't be able to elucidate that i don't know yeah, what kind of person was he? The father, at least. The son, you can't really blame him for following his yeah. father's lead, maybe. But it said in the article that they were foreigners. And I say really foreign. Mm. Hubert foreign. <laughs> Out of this Hubert. world. <laughs> well, they were ticketed oh, by man. law enforcement rangers. I wonder what the description was on the ticket. Idiocracy. <laughs> Unlawful <Yeah>. idiocy. <laughs> but then so it like took I said, an it, ominous yeah. turn. It did, yeah. And that's you know, we're laughing because the, the premise is funny, but it was it was unfortunate the uh when the, the calf was released, at least from what I see here, it um it was then abandoned uh by its herd, so it had to be euthanized. Uh which Yeah. Know, that's so, uh, when your when your idiocy doesn't just affect yourself. Yeah. yeah. yeah so the kept walking up to people's people and cars because the herd wouldn't take him back. That's really sad. Oh. Oh man. So, all right, we're getting sad. Oh, 
Yeah, no. <laughs> Let's see, what's our, our next one here? Um, this is a good one. Man seeks restraining order against God. <laughs> a, uh, an Israeli man has petitioned for a restraining order against God, claiming the Almighty has been particularly unkind to him over the years and that the police are unable to do anything. He said that God treated him harshly and not fairly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess he tried to... Well, the other... He tried to press charges against God on different occasions, and the police had to come out to his house like ten different times. And so finally, he took yeah. it to court to get a restraining order. Because <laughs> that's what the police advised, apparently. I guess after the tenth call, it was kind of like, you know what, man, we can't really help you out. <laughs> Why don't you try and get a restraining order? Like, talk about passing the buck, right? <laughs> Somebody else has to deal with this crazy dude. We got, we got to get this guy off our case. Well, they also said in the article that God could not be contacted for a comment. <laughs> and he wasn't there to defend himself. But I would disagree. Because if you consider that God is everywhere and in everything and everyone, I'm sure he was probably in the courtroom that day. <laughs> Just chose not to say anything. He chose to remain silent. <laughs> he exercised his right. His Fifth Amendment right. <laughs> Why he still had it. You know what? I wish that he like that there was more details in the article because I would love to know what the like the details of this guy's complaint. Like how has God been treating him not nicely over all these years? Yeah. And this is a, apparently not a satire article. It was on the the UK Independent. So that's what my first thought was like, oh, this is just an Onion article, um, but it's not. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it in lots like of one. different places. Yeah. It was um, what's it, the, the Israeli Times, mm. and their newspaper, a lot of places picked it up. <laughs> yeah, and Doug, it said in the article that there was no specific details given about what exactly had happened to make him feel this way. <laughs> yeah. has been very naughty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It makes me think of that guy who was hit by lightning like 10 times or something crazy like that. Like he's got to assume that God's got it in for him too. Mm -hmm. The guy, he represented himself. He was his own defense, his own lawyer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not too many lawyers lining up to take that case, I don't imagine. It makes me wonder like if the guy was, I wish there were some more details too, like, you know, um, to, you know, was he uh, maybe schizophrenic, you know, or was he just, like, playing a really, like, dedicated joke on the police? You know, like, he'd committed himself to this joke. <laughs> I, I'm, I don't know. I'm curious about that. I, I think he was. That's almost pathological persistence, kind of, if that's the case. Yeah, some yeah. kind of delusional disorder going on there. <laughs> I would think so, yeah. I mean, yeah, you got you got to wonder, I mean, what... <sighs> what could be going through somebody's mind where they would think that a very human institution like the legal system could have any effect on a supreme being. Like it just, it's like, Oh God's going to be like, Oh darn, he got a restraining order. I guess I can't keep messing with him. Yeah. Hmm. Well, let's see. What else do we have here? Um, 
uh, hell is a church invention. Well, says former bishops. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a, that's a it's a happy dot. Yeah, this is brimstone is not real after all. Were you going to yeah, say that? Yeah, and it's actually an ex-bishop who's saying that. Well, I, I was just saying, like, it's interesting that it's actually, like, a, a retired bishop who's actually gone on record as saying this. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, you, th- you think of kind of the... It, it's kind of like a, a pillar of the Christian faith, you know, that, uh, that you know, it, the, the idea of both heaven and hell, and that if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. It's kind of the, the means by which... Well, I mean, it's like, like he says in the interview, he actually said, no, it's just that was only instituted as a system of control. That's the only mm-hmm. reason it exists and is to keep the church alive, which, you know, good on him for saying that. Like, maybe he couldn't say that until he retired. <laughs> it's an interesting one. I guess uh, I'm, I'm getting a little more serious here, but I'll try not to get like a bump to be a bummer about it. <laughs> but uh, that it. it uh, so I grew up in the, you know, evangelical Christian church and in the States, there's also a number of, um, evangelical pastors. I, I want to say two, maybe three that I'm aware of who have come out publicly recently, uh, like within the last five or so years saying that, you know, that they, that they don't believe that hell is, uh, literally interpretable from the scripture, that it's hmm. something essentially that it's a state of being without God's presence and that the idea of eternal fire and brimstone is not what it is. And they're, of course, being lambasted and, and, and shunned by the, uh, the conservative Christian community. But it's interesting that it's, um, it is being touted, you know, by more than one, uh, minister. Yeah. It's, um, it, it, to me, it seems like a very progressive, um, stance to take. Um, and I can see why there would be a lot of kind of backlash against it, just because a lot of people don't want a progressive uh, take on their religion. They would much rather have the uh, traditional fire and brimstone for those who sin type uh, approach. Um, mm. Because, I mean, that would really start people questioning everything. It's like, well, wait a minute. If there's no hell, then, you know, why am I being good? <laughs> yeah, and if there's no hell, why do I have to believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again in three days to save me from my sins? That's like knocking down one of the yeah. pillars of the whole Christian faith. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like how he talks so, about how uh, the church doesn't like for people to grow up. You and know? take responsibility yeah. for yeah. themselves and their own actions. And you mm-hmm. can't control grown-ups. So that's why they talk about mm. being born again. Because when you're born again, you're still a child. So people don't need to be born yeah. again. They need to grow up. <laughs> they need to accept their responsibility for themselves and the world. Yep. Yeah. Well, this He's, He actually sounds a little bit cynical. Yeah. He is from New Jersey, too. So I think <laughs> that has to be taken into account. <laughs> <laughs> It makes me think of the uh, the the comedian bit uh, Pat uh, from Patton Oswalt. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the comedian Patton Oswalt. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he does a bit about sky cake, where it's, you know essentially all religions are like there's sky cake and sky baklava and like sky bread, and <laughs> it's like I did not spend my life not raping and killing people to not get sky cake when I die. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
Well, I mean, it just shows the whole like authoritarian bent that you have yeah. to a lot of people who are are kind of diligent about these religions. That um, you know, the the there was a, an article a while back on uh, Sot that was talking about uh, the people with moral moral in endoskeletons versus moral exoskeletons. And the endoskeleton people basically have their own sense of more morality of what is good and what is not good and what they want to pursue and what they don't versus people who have an external sense of morality and are kind of require an external source to kind of point them in the direction of what is good and what is not. And I think for those people, they require some kind of penalty for bad behavior because they mm-hmm. assume that, and, and maybe within themselves, they see that if they didn't have that kind of external morality source, they would just run wild and just start doing, like, you know, screwing everybody over and stealing and raping and pillaging and all these kinds of things. Versus people who kind of have this internal idea within themselves of what is right and what is not right. I don't know, maybe I'm getting too heavy here. No, I don't think no, it's good. getting too heavy at all. Be, it's being uh, a grown-up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, if you compare when, that yeah, to the exactly. former pope who said that fires of hell are real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But didn't the current pope say also say that hell was not a real place? Yeah. I thought I thought there was something in the news like a couple of years ago where he came out and said, no, hell is not a real place. There is no fire and brimstone. And it's more metaphorical, which also seemed incredibly progressive. Yeah, I think he's a lot more progressive than the former pope who just looked like Satan himself in certain pictures. Yeah. <laughs> With bad fashion taste. <laughs> oh, you don't like the pointy hat? <laughs> or the bubble car? What about the bubble car? <laughs> Saving him from the damnation of hell. <laughs> He'll go to hell in his bubble car so he won't burn. <laughs> Well, I guess uh, let's. Uh, what else do we have here for our topics? Um, we can talk about dreams for a little bit. Um, the uh, the flying dreams article I thought was was pretty interesting. Um, basically, uh, talking about how um, this is one of the best ways to describe how your dreams can be deciphered is to think of your conscious mind as an island in the middle of a vast ocean. Uh, the ocean represents your unconscious mind, making up your unconscious self, your life's experiences, your knowledge, your emotional responses, etc. The ocean floor is what we share as our collective human knowledge. The sky and anything associated with the sky is from outside of ourselves, the collective metaphysical knowledge. Um, yeah. So most likely the message is in the feel of the dream, you know, did it make you uncomfortable? Were you frightened or did you feel out of control? Uh, usually our dream feeling signifies the core message of the dream. And that, that kind of resonates with me that, uh, I don't know, it, it always felt weird, like, because um, I got one of the dream dictionaries back in the day, you know, and was like, oh, wow, you know, birds mean this, you know, or like, uh, my friend is, is in the shadows and that means that, you know, and like, very specific meanings literally drawn from what you see in the dream. It, it never really sat with me that that was, that you could take those literal interpretations. Uh, I guess I was thinking yeah. maybe, you know, it's, it's more 
what's going on in your life. Like you have to bounce it off what you're experiencing in your life and then take a, mm-hmm. a metaphorical feeling-based interpretation of what it is. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I've always been a little hesitant here. with that too. Uh, have you? Yeah, sometimes, well, most of the time my flying dreams are I was being chased and I would just be running and running then all of a sudden I would take off in flight. And then very oh, wow. rarely I would have a dream where I just was flying and it was a happy dream. But most of them have been nightmares mostly. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say I've never had a flying dream. And oh, it's wow. funny too because I've had I've had like I can count on one hand the number of times I've had a um uh oh I'm blanking on what it's called again. What's it called when you're actually aware that you're dreaming? Lucid. Lucid? Lucid dream. Thank you. Yeah, I've had a couple of lucid dreams, and every time I'm always like, oh my god, I'm dreaming. I have to try and fly, but I've never actually been able to do it. I usually barely lift the ground. <laughs> I've, I've often had the ones where you're kind of like learning to fly, where you might jump, and then you jump really high, and then you coast for like 100 yards, and then you come back down, and then you jump again, and you go a little farther. Um I've had other ones yeah, too. Yeah, I've had those. Like, yeah. Or like you're levitating a little bit and you're like, holy shit, what's going on right now? And then you kind of figure it out. <laughs> um, and those are fun. But it doesn't happen a lot. Well, I yeah. wonder about the falling well, the falling dreams too. Is that considered flying? No, that's falling. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I've had falling dreams yeah. too, but I never land. It's just the sensation of falling. Yeah, and then you usually wake up. Yeah. With a startle. Yeah, exactly. Well, in the article, um, the author actually said, and it's written by uh, Keila Noel at Collective Evolution. And she says that flying dreams, so she's saying that the sky is kind of more uh, representative of kind of the collective metaphysical knowledge, um, more the spiritual side of things. So flying is kind of like going into that spiritual aspect of life. Um, which I don't know is, is interesting, but like like Jonathan said, I'm always a little bit skeptical of uh, of those kinds of interpretations. And she even mentions in the article, you know, if somebody is is kind of flying all the time as part of their life, like they they're kind of a jet setter, or they're always traveling for business, or they're a pilot maybe, or something like that, or a hang glider. Like obviously, flying for them is going to have a very different sort of interpretation than um, somebody kind of who doesn't fly very often. Um, and obviously, if you're flying without a plane or something, it's probably going to have a more um, symbolic sort of uh, representation. But um, yeah, I don't know. I thought I thought it was kind of interesting. Anyway, her interpretation that it's kind of like when when you're you're flying in your dreams, you're kind of more exploring that spiritual side of things. Yeah, and she said that if you dream of a plane, it could mean that you're using some kind of mechanism to elevate yourself to a higher level of thinking, like if you meditate or pray. Being in a plane in your dream could be symbolic of, I don't know, contacting your higher self or something. Maybe. Well, it's sure. kind of like yeah. in a past show that we had, we talked about um, Dr. Estes's uh, approach to dream work and how we try and interpret it in like, um, you know, 3D terms and really it's like because it's the unconscious it's like the translation gets lost so I'm with you guys Mm -hmm. with like 
overly interpretation of of what it all means. I've also read that mm-hmm. the best person to interpret your dreams is yourself. And like we, Jonathan mm-hmm. said before, like basically how did the dream make you feel? That'll probably give you more clues than looking in a dream book and seeing what does this mean? What does a bird mean? What does a plane mean? Yeah. All that being said, though, there is kind of the Jungian interpretation of dreams where what, what Jung said um as, as far as I know, I have to admit, I've never actually read Young, but I've read about him. And uh, as, as far as his interpretation was always that every single thing within the dream is an aspect of yourself. Mm-hmm. So if you dream about somebody like a friend, um, what you, you'll have more success in interpreting the dream if you look at that as kind of an aspect of yourself. So if you have a friend who is maybe very daring and always taking chances um, whereas you're a very conservative person, if you dream about that friend, it might be that part of you that maybe yearns to be more spontaneous or more uh, daring. Um, that, that's just an example off the top of my head. But I think that that's an interesting way of interpreting the dreams. I mean, as well as looking at the emotional component, obviously. But um, but yeah, I think uh, I, I think that, that he was onto something there. Well, the author of this article, she talks about that, too. She wrote another article called A Theory of Why We Dream About Sex. And she says that Mm -hmm. everyone in your dream is you. Nobody starts walking into your mind and starts messing with your head. Every character in your dream is a reflection of your own self. I think that makes sense on a certain level. Yeah. So what does it mean when you're having sex with somebody? Well, it says here... Having sex in your dreams means that you are healing and integrating programs back into yourself to make you a stronger, more solid you. Hmm. Um, sometimes. Which I, I mean, it, it could. I guess it, it, at first it struck me as like a, a manifestation of narcissism because that's that's the definition of narcissism, right? I mean, essentially, you would you want to uh, have sex with yourself. I, I know that oh. that's, <laughs> the, that's the that's the Freudian definition of narcissism. No, that's your mother. <laughs> Not the, not the full definition. <laughs> well, she also said that if you have sex in your dreams and you climax, that's basically just your body's way of getting rid of pent-up energy. But having mm. sex and you don't climax, it could be a way of integrating certain aspects of the person that you're having sex with in your dream. And you should like look mm. at that person, like what kind of person are they what's their character and uh hmm. maybe that'll give you some clues as what you're trying to integrate back into yourself sure hmm. interesting yeah i mean who knows what seeds dreams you know i mean i'm sure that many times and you know i've i've had strange prophetic dreams a couple times that actually came true you know not of anything like hmm. uh astounding um but i i remember this stands out in my memory that I had a dream once of sledding down a hill and running into somebody at the bottom. And that exact thing happened to me like a week later. It was like deja vu. Really? It was a yeah, precognitive was really dream. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you wow. know, I've only had that a couple of times and, and who knows like where that comes from. But then I think there are also dreams where like flying dreams, you might during the day look up and see a bird 
and be like, oh, that would be cool to fly. And then bam, you're going to dream about flying that night, you know, like, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's such a broad, uh, area of interpretation. I think it's really hard to nail down like where they come from or what they mean exactly. Yeah, I had yeah. a similar type of dream that, that Jonathan explained about. Uh, it was actually reoccurring where my house was burning down, you know, several, several times. And I started to create a little Whoa. bit of paranoia in me. You know, I was like, mm. oh, because I lived in a wood home. And uh, and then about, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I tried not to obsess so about it. So back when you're in a log cabin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But then uh, about two years later, my neighbor's house burned to the ground, and it was a huge Whoa. fire. I mean, you know, uh, the tanks exploding, The uh, I mean, it was pretty massive, and I was like, oh, okay, good. It wasn't my house, you know what I mean? I mean, it wasn't, nobody got hurt in the fire, but you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, Did you stop having no the fire animals dreams were harmed. Yeah. No, um, yes, I did. So it was kind of like, I don't know, a message from myself to myself. Should have been a message from yourself to your neighbor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I used to have dreams a lot of houses. Like most of the time when I dream about my house, it's always a house that I grew up in as a little kid. And then sometimes it's like this house and it's, looks a lot smaller than it well in the dream the house is small but i keep opening these doors and going into these long corridors and finding hidden rooms and trying to find my way back to the main house and i can't do it Mm. Mm. so maybe i'm trying Mm. to explore something in my subconscious mind that i can't figure it out you need the key maker (laughs) (laughs) yeah Well, they often say that a house in a dream, like if you dream that you're in a house, is kind of representative of your consciousness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're exploring that consciousness, like I used to, I went through a period where I was always dreaming I was in a basement. And I was kind of like, what does that mean? And it would always be really cluttered, too. That was the other thing. I was always like having to like navigate around junk and like try and find my way through things. There's a little peek into my psyche there if anybody <laughs> wants to interpret what that means. <laughs> You screwed up, Doug. What does mine mean if my house is burning down? <laughs> yeah. Good question. Maybe it's like the phoenix, like a rebirth. Yes. That's a good interpretation. Destroying That's a happy dot. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I'm not going to suffer the internal damnation of hell. <laughs> I think yeah. it means that you're burning off the useless aspects of your personality and childhood programming. Yay. And you will emerge renewed. <laughs> but then technically wow. it was my neighbor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and there's also, you know... um entertainment affecting dreams too it makes me think you know like if i watch mm. an episode of the walking dead i'm i'm, I'm usually going to dream about zombies you know it's like <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's a lot of, a lot of times whatever goes into your head is what comes out in your dreams um but i don't garbage know it's, in, it's, garbage out yes yeah it's interesting like i i think there's a really valid field of, of study in there in interpreting dreams uh but i wonder if like this thought just came to mind. Like, I wonder if, um, it really needs to be, you know, when you feel something really deeply and you know, 
in the moment that that has like some kind of deep meaning you get like a connection and you're like okay this means something a lot of times that doesn't happen but every once in a while it does like if you mm. get that if you get that sense maybe then it's worth looking into more mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know but it's yeah, hard I, would agree. That, I think that's where a lot of like kind of new age gurus and stuff fall short where they might overinterpret that <clears throat> and think you know if you know if they have the dream that their house is burning down they're going to run around to everybody in the neighborhood <laughs> checking their their fire extinguishers or something well, i also <laughs> think that sometimes a dream is just a dream like sometimes a banana is right. just mm-hmm. a banana it's just a way to yep. <laughs> kind of sort all the junk that went on during the day mhm yeah i think there's a real uh, like temptation to try and you know to to try and it, not necessarily literally interpret them, but, you know, people who get on those dream dictionary websites and things like that. And it's almost like they're, they're trying to uh, take something that is, you know, not really explainable and bring it down into very explainable terms. Like I dreamt about a snake and a snake means this, therefore this, this is what this means. And it, I think that really, you know, when you're dealing with the subconscious, it is so vast and very difficult to explain so it's it's kind of like where where dream interpretation really falls short in some instances because I think a lot of it is really just not explainable um and you know to try to try and and narrow it into some kind of lexicon where there's there's like literally if you dream this it means this i think uh i think there there's i mean i wouldn't say there's a danger in it, but i think it's it's maybe a futile kind of uh, exercise mm-hmm. yeah. Sometimes it's just entertaining to talk with people about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I had a dream the other night. I was back in high school. I'm not sure what that means, but. Mm. Oh, no. <laughs> well, technically, I never finished high school, so maybe it's a, an <laughs> unfinished <funny>. program. <laughs> You're finishing it in your dream. <laughs> <laughs> was that a clap because I didn't finish yes. high school? <laughs> you escaped the system. <laughs> but it was funny because it's all those mundane things about it, you know, the signing up, the going to gym class, the not having the proper gym clothes and all that. <laughs> yeah, when I have like those kind of high school, return to high school type dreams, it's always like an anxiety dream. Where it's like I have a test that I haven't studied for or I have an assignment that's due and I haven't even started it yet and like all this different stuff or I, or I can't find the classroom that I'm supposed to be in. Like it's always that kind of thing. So I wonder if it's just like that was a very anxious time of life. So that tends to be the setting for all these anxiety <laughs> dreams. Yeah, I have those same type of dreams where I'm back in school, but I have a class and I forgot that I'm enrolled in that class, so I never show up. And then I find out and it's like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And the same thing with work. (laughs) I've had that dream too. I have a dream where I'm assigned some patients and then for some reason I forget that one of these people was my patients and they go the whole day without having a nurse. I have had similar dreams like that uh, when I was in the cooking industry. I'm suddenly in a very strange kitchen and I'm responsible for like the whole service and I don't know the menu. I don't know anything that's going on. Yeah. I think that's job related stress because I was a waitress for many years and and same kind of thing where you have 200 patrons and you have no food. (laughs) (laughs) 
But again, it's the feeling of the drain. <coughs> so you yeah. know you have work stress or school anxiety. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what are you going to do about it? So it sounds like a, a collective idea here is we all were traumatized by school. <laughs> or work. Yeah. Or work, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, that segues nicely if we're talking about like uh, trauma and emotional healing. If we want to move on to some of our other material here, there's this article, uh, Remembering and Savoring Positive Memories is a Practical and Effective Way to Lift Your Mood. And uh, I thought that this was kind of interesting because um, I will catch myself being overly cynical at times. No. And I'm like, you know, of course. <laughs> you know, like, and I do, th- I do think that this is generally true, but I can take it too far sometimes where I'm like, you know, making yourself feel happy is dumb because you, sh- you know, everything sucks, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um but you know, it's a. Uh, I forget that it's a really important part of uh, emotional healing is to, uh, you know, to do that um, because you know if you're if you're purely negative all the time, then you don't have balance, uh, and there needs to be some balance between those things. Um, mm. So, like we we talked on the show in the past a number of times about looking at the darker side of life and kind of like keeping your eyes open and making sure that you see everything and not shying away from it. Um, that doesn't negate the fact that you should also, you know, embrace joy and happiness. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just, it's hard to hold that line. So I don't know. What do you you guys think about this? Like this idea, like, um, you know, essentially embracing positive, essentially like meditating on positive memories Um, because the studies are fairly interesting. They showed that it's, that it lifted people's mood. Um, So there is Mm -hmm. sort, there is sort of a, kind of objective, um, you know, experimental result there. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things they say is that like therapists have traditionally focused on addressing negative moods. And I think that it, to a certain extent that can actually end up being maybe counterproductive because you end up sort of dwelling on Mm -hmm. these things. Um, I mean, it's very easy when you get kind of caught up in a negative emotion, just, just sit there and churn with it and, and, uh, and kind of obsess over it. And I think, um, having a, a technique for kind of pulling you out of that, because I mean, I, I, I know for myself a, a lot of times when I am in kind of a negative mood, um, it's kind of like I stay in it because I have to figure something out. Like, you know, there has to be some, there's something there that I need to figure out about it, or there's some, there's some value in kind of playing it over and over again. When I think uh, maybe in a lot of cases, there's only so much you can do from when you're in that negative state. So I think having something like maybe if you write out a couple of uh, positive memories that you can kind of turn to um, when you are kind of stuck and, and say, you know what, I'm going to think about this right now. This was a happy time. So I'm going to, I'm going to actually go over um, go over that in my mind. I think I think it could be valuable. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think like it it kind of goes along with the whole thing of um, having not ruminating so much on things, but also mm-hmm. the idea of visualization. You know, like if if it you know I, when I was a young child, I was taught by a therapist how to visualize in moments of stress and tension, a safe place, you know, wherever that is, a park or a beach or under the tree. And I think 
like you're saying, Doug, like when you ruminate so much like that, it's like you're creating all this stress and anxiety and you're almost making the situation worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not to necessarily yeah. disassociate, but to try and maybe take your mind to a place where you can kind of calm all that internal chatter, if that makes sense. Or like for mm-hmm. me, it's like... Uh, you know, being on the beach and, and smelling the ocean air and feeling the breeze and all these um, kind of sensorial perceptions that tend to calm you down, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of works, not just if you're just sitting there meditating and thinking about happy memories or happy spaces or places. Like if you're with a group of people, like... A, Things that people like to do is like take trips down memory lane and say, like, remember that time we did this or that or went here or like after a funeral people get together and they'll tell funny stories about the person that died. That kind mm-hmm. of lightens the mood and it kind of uh, reinforces the bonding that you shared with these people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know there's certainly ones that. um I'm thinking about fear specifically, and a lot of times we're we're afraid of something like you know there's something coming up in your life and you're kind of angsting over it or you're you're fearing it in some way, and you know I guess there's some value in kind of playing over possible scenarios and and kind of uh, figuring out you know well if this happens what am I going to do? But there does definitely seem to be a point where you're just ruminating and you're just kind of obsessing over things mm-hmm. so i think in those kinds of situations it can definitely be helpful to kind of kind of go you know what enough is enough i'm going to think about something happy right now kind of like our show today <laughs> very <Yeah>. happy <laughs> remember that time we started a radio show on sot <laughs> <laughs> that was the best <laughs> and we weren't dreaming about, about going live and forgetting everything that we read the, the week before. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> well, another interesting think- article that we had. Oh, go on, Jonathan. I was just going to talk about oh. it. Well, I was just going to say, like, the the, uh, the idea of, like, positive visualization and stuff just makes me think about um, living in the present moment. You know, because oftentimes mm. most most of your anxieties and fears, no, granted, there are exceptions. There are times where the present just sucks and you just got to deal with it. Um, but mm. I think a lot of the time our anxieties and fears come from our anticipation of what might happen or what is going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you can bring yourself back into the uh, the present moment, look around you. Like Erica, you said, you know, if you're on the beach or in a field and it's warm and the, the wind is blowing, you know, like bring yourself back to that moment um, and, and think about where you are uh, and just experience it. And a lot of mm. times for me, that for me, that's what works in, in reducing anxiety is just saying, where, where am I right now? What's happening right now? That's really the only thing that's happening. You know, the future is not happening. The past is done. Um, so that seems to help with that. Yeah. And that kind of brings us to another article that we looked at for today. And um, it was called The More You Regularly Experience Gratitude, The More Self-Control You Have. So I thought that was a really interesting one where they they, they did a study um, to look at um, how gratitude can kind of affect um, how much self-control you actually have. So what mm. they basically did was um, – uh, what, did, what did they do again? 
they were okay. So they followed people over the course of three weeks um, and had them record their emotional states via their smartphones. Um, and then after that, they were asked if they would let, rather have thirty dollars now or fifty dollars at some point in the future. And apparently, the people who um, experienced gratitude more often were more likely to delay their gratification. Um, hmm. so, it sounds like kind of maybe a, a wishy-washy type study, but nonetheless, I think, I think it, it, it points to something interesting where if you kind of are experienced gratitude, so like you're saying, Jonathan, kind of being more in the present moment, um, appreciating what you have, uh, appreciating the here and now, um, that you kind of are a person who's not going to be more prone to uh, impulses, and just kind of, uh, you know, satisfying, you know, you're more likely to to kind of delay your gratification and, and be able to put that off. Yeah, because yeah. If, if you're satisfied with who you are and what you have and where you are, you're not having this feeling of lack and you're not always grasping for more this, that or the other thing. So, yeah, I can see how that would play out, how you would have more self-control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I guess if you are dissatisfied, you're always going to be kind of reaching for something. Yeah. Well, and also, if you, you know, read the news, not to go down (laughs) a darker note here, but just realizing how fortunate we are in so many ways when you are constantly reading about the suffering of others around the world and the fact that you have a meal today or that you have a place to live, that there's not war going on where you live or you're not bombarded, you know, overhead, but whatever amount of things just literally be in the moment. And it really does take practice Mm -hmm. to, to stop that ruminating to the mind and just be, okay, I'm here right now. You know, I'm with my dogs or my cat. Everything's okay. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, uh, I think about that often too. That you know, I'm. I have my health. Uh, I'm not like scraping the couch cushions uh, for <laughs> to get to get food. You know, I've I've been there, um, but yeah. you know, I'm grateful yeah. that it's not happening right now. And even in those cases, you know, you can take that to an extreme and say, you, you know, my uh, there's not bombs falling on my head. You know. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not starving yeah. or have uh, dysentery or, you know, all of these things. Like, there are so many. And this is not to prop yourself up as being, like, better than other people. That's definitely the wrong way to take it. But just to be grateful that you are um, you are in a space, you know, where those bad things aren't, aren't happening at that moment. Um, and then I, I think the, uh, the, the kicker then or what speaks to people's character is, like, what you do with that. You know, do you... Uh, do you then just kind of like just revel in it and oh, my life is so awesome, you know, or do you like say, okay, <laughs> I, I have the ability to, to do things that other people may not have the ability to do. Um, you know, yeah. so if you have, if you have time, what can you do with that time to benefit other people? Or if you have money, you know, what can you do with that? Um, so, yeah, anyway, there's, I, uh, there's definitely like a responsibility involved. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are in a position to be able to, um, you know, have a, a, a perspective on the world because somebody who's in a, a, a war-torn country is probably not going to have that perspective. So you kind of have a responsibility to do something with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. 
And it is very easy to forget about gratitude and to kind of um, get very caught up in your day-to-day problems. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think I think that um, even if you are kind of regularly reading sod and things and seeing how much horrible stuff is going on in the world, a lot of the times, like I know for myself, there's, there's a detachment there. Um, that's what's going on out there. Um, meanwhile, you know, I didn't get what I wanted for dinner last night. So I'm kind of <laughs> pissed off about that. It's like, it's like your, your little mundane problems still seem to be able to persist despite the fact that you, um, are aware of, you know, in, in some abstract sense, how lucky you are. Mm-hmm. So I think that like the, it, it does require practice. Like Erica was saying, you know, you do actually have to practice gratitude, um, mm-hmm. Because otherwise, it is very easy to get caught up in the little insignificant things in your daily life. I agree. Yeah. We all have that one friend or coworker that's meh, 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 rah, 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 and you're like, oh my gosh, is that me? Do I sound like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I catch myself complaining and I'm like, what? You know, it just all of a sudden dawns on me like, what am I complaining about? You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's where you make the in. little gesture of the cricket playing the violin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Referring yeah. back to uh, to comedy, again, I like stand-up comedy, so a lot of, a lot of this stuff is coming mm-hmm. to mind. But uh, the Louis C.K. bit about the, yeah. um, the Wi-Fi on the plane. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that one, but where they were, I have, he, yeah. he, was, he was on a plane where they were, it was like their maiden voyage with Wi-Fi on the plane, and then the Wi-Fi went down, <laughs> and the guy next to him was like, this sucks, you know, and he was like, dude, you know, shut the hell up, you are experiencing the, the miracle of human flight right now, <laughs> Yeah, and complaining about not being able You're to use You're in a the tin Facebook can. Account. You're in a yeah. tin can thousands of miles above or thousands of feet above the planet. Yeah. And at least yeah. you're not getting irradiated in the process. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, you see a lot of examples of that. You know, I mean, another one that comes to mind is, jeez, oh, this was a few years ago. There was a YouTube video circulating around of a girl who had gotten a black iPhone for her birthday when she wanted a white one and threw threw this insane fit, like insane, absolutely nuts. Um, You know, and that's uh, systemic, I think, is that lack of, I mean, that's an extreme example, but, you know, we're talking about lack of gratitude for basic things. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. You know, I think experiencing gratitude uh, and humility for your present experience can also re- uh, increase your distress tolerance, mm-hmm. you know, too, because mm-hmm. we're like, say, if you, if you drop your coffee mug and it breaks on the floor and you're like, my day sucks, you know, like, this is awful, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, it's not. You just broke your mug. You know, <laughs> if you, uh, yeah. you gain perspective on it, it can help with that distress tolerance. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's so endemic that it, they have, have, uh, uh, a saying for it now, which is first world problems. I was just yeah. going to say like, that. I can't believe. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe I got a black iPhone instead of a white one. My life sucks. <laughs> yeah. That little girl needs to go on a trip to a third world country and see how they Seriously. live. Or maybe even just volunteer at a soup kitchen or do something 
to help somebody else. Maybe she won't be such a brat anymore. Perspective. Yeah. Kickstart. Yeah, maybe in some situations we need to kickstart that gratitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes well, me think I, of from the, uh, from the Carlos Castaneda books. Um, I forget which one this was from, but I remember vaguely this story where there was a, uh, a really kind of ungrateful, complaining uh, person. And I don't remember if it was a child or an adult. I think it was a child. And that Don Juan had counseled this child's parent to hire uh, a big, scary, goonish man like to come in and <laughs> oh, scare yeah. the shit out of the kid. In, a, yeah, in, order to, right. in order to give them some perspective, kind of a scared straight sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Parenting well, advice from Don Juan. From Don Juan. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll admit, uh, when my kids would complain about their first world problems, my solution was to always put on a super heavy documentary. <laughs> <laughs> like uh there's one uh, called Born into Brothels about children in India, you know what I mean? And uh, and afterwards I'd be like, Do you have a little bit of perspective now? You know? <laughs> I may have created wow. a little bit of trauma in the process of doing that, but uh, <laughs> I think they kinda learn like, Oh, don't complain, mom's gonna make us watch some depressing thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sounds effective. <laughs> yeah. Well, another one of the articles that uh, we wanted to share today um, was this uh, channeling universal life force to heal your body. Um, did you guys get a chance mm. to read yeah. that? It's, I, I found this really yeah. fascinating, uh, Teresa Wade, and it's uh, Anatara Healing Arts. But it was just a, a really great kind of synopsis. Um, she talks about ancient cultures, how they understood how we live in a vast sea of energy and that the planets and stars are conscious beings who communicate with each other. They believe that trees served as antennas, which allow natural, subtle energies and information to flow up from the Earth to the stars and planets, and from other celestial bodies into the Earth. They taught that everything and every being has consciousness and channels this energy according to capabilities. And they basically help facilitate this essential uh, cosmic dialogue. And um, how all matter, including the physical body, is a gathering of this universal energy and that they recognize our thoughts and emotions are forms of energy. And when these are in harmony with the living universal energy field, we, come, we become clear channels. Mm-hmm. So the life force of mm-hmm. earth and cosmos flows through us more smooth and, smoothly and abundantly. And with this practice of awakening these kind of abilities within ourself... We um, experience, you know, heightened creativity, extrasensory perception, and the ability to bring about dramatic physical healing. And she talked a little Mm. bit about other cultures, like um, how this universal sea of energy is called qi or qi in China Mm -hmm. or prana in India, and that how it circulates our bodies and interacts with the electromagnetic spectrum. And it includes subtler energies not yet understood by Western science. And, and we see this in, like, the practice of acupuncture. You know, the, the needles are used to assist the flow of energy through meridians in the body. And in uh, the practice of martial artists. And um, also the Hopis in their uh, native ceremonies would use a kachina doll in order to attract rain 
or to receive healing um, energies or other benefits. The, Dong- the Dogon of Africa, too, know how to call on this channel, and they called it Baiwali, and they call the channel through which we receive these energies from the cosmos, the Yenu. And so they believe that it is our responsibility mm-hmm. as humans to become clear channels who ease the flow of cosmic energies mm-hmm. rather than interfere or disrupt them, obstruct them. Well, that made me think of uh, reading Joe Dispenza's work and tied back to the last article we were just talking about, how, about how gratitude is so important. And he, Joe Dispenza says that the feeling of gratitude is a very receptive state when it comes to the universe. So if you're living in harmony with nature and you have a feeling of gratitude, you don't feel that you're lacking anything, you're okay with the way things are, I think that can kind of open you up to the universal energy in a way. Because if you're lacking or you're griping or complaining about something that kind of blocks whatever gifts you might receive from the universe because you're so focused on what you want and what you what you don't have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it kind of ties in with all the stuff like uh, that Gabor Mate talks about as well um, and how diseases tend to be a manifestation of this kind of negative emotional state. So if you're constantly kind of running this program all the time, this negative program, that it actually interferes with the body in a way, um, you know, it could, it could be looked at as like kind of a blockage of this energy flow. And that over time, this can actually manifest as some sort of disease or some sort of ailment or an injury something along those lines. So it, 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 it's, it's a really interesting article, and you can connect dots in a lot of ways on this one. Mm-hmm. Particularly if you're thinking of your, oh. your fascia and how certain emotions can impact that. And your fascia is kind of like if you picture all your body, like all the muscles in your body and your organs, like wrapped in saran wrap. <laughs> it kind of covers mm. everything and connects everything in your body and if you have like negative emotions it can impact like the flow of energy throughout your fascia yeah and she talks in the article and we'll put it up in the chat about how um you know this uh these feelings this blocking like you were talking about doug um you know gets stuck in that in your body in those networks, and we talked about that in a in a past show, issues in your tissues. You know what I mean? But how, um, you know, aside from actual physical injuries that, like the Gaber Mate work, um, you know, you can hold these things in your bodies and in, in your bodies <laughs> if you have more than one. <laughs> <laughs> but I know just um, just share a personal antidote to that. Uh, Last week after our show, I started to feel this immense pain in my shoulders and my head. And I think it was the, mm. the heaviness of the information. And um, I found that I was starting to get a headache and just feeling like it was weighing on my physical body, knowing all these things and, and discussing it and sharing it. And, and um, I ended up going down into the creek and... Mm putting my head under the water, my whole body, and just visualizing like, okay, you know these things, but just wash it away 
you baptized yourself (laughs) in the holy water. (laughs) (laughs) And it literally left. The headache left, I can honestly say. I think Tiffany can verify I'm a witness. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, things that you're like, here here we think we have all this awareness. And, I, I, you know, oh, it's... But but it, it these things can physically get stuck in your body and um, knowing how to kind of identify that and and releasing it or or having other people you know like oh you look a little tense you know your shoulders are hunched or your jaws clenched you know to uh, have that release or, mm-hmm. or at least try and release it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because the, the whole fascia aspect is pretty fascinating. We'll play on words there. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I think that it, it, it's not just like a, a, some sort of esoteric energy thing, um, because the fascia actually have all these little uh, vessels running through them that uh, bring uh, nutrients and blood and, and, and water and all these different things to the different cells. So even, uh, looking at it from a very physical perspective, um, having a, a place where the fascia is all bunched up, which can tend to happen from, uh, uh, either like chronic postures or chronic bad, um, movement patterns or something like that. The fascia can really tent, like tighten up in certain areas. It does actually block the flow of that vital stuff that your cells actually need. Mm -hmm. So there is certainly a physical aspect to it. And I mean, you know, if, if an emotion can lead to a chronic posture and that chronic posture can lead to tension in the fascia, then you have a very physical mechanism right there. So we don't even have to look at it from some kind of esoteric kind of energy perspective. Like it does actually have a physical aspect to it. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, Erica, your story about getting down in the creek uh, kind of made me think of this other article that we have here um, talking about uh, science shows precisely why trees literally help reduce stress. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and I thought this, this was kind of interesting that a study published in 2012 that examined tree canopy in urban settings found more tree cover led to less crime. Uh, linked to more psychosocial mm. connection than the calming power of the trees themselves, the effect is still remarkable. Uh, trees in a neighborhood, according to the study, implied as better cared for than one without them, suggesting to criminals there will be more police, et cetera, et cetera. So that's more like a psychological kind of thing. Um, they said that uh, <clears throat> while trees have started to tune themselves into the urban environment, which I think is kind of a weird statement, uh <laughs> <laughs> Benefiting from all those things we might have thought would kill them. More green space means less stress, less heat, more attentive kids, and less crime. Um, despite mm. their manifold impact, trees might not be the solution to all of civilization's problems, but they just keep us a little more relaxed while we go about our business. Um, mm. So it's, it's kind of interesting. They're talking about like the psychological impact of, of being around trees in an urban environment specifically, but... I, I would, as an addendum to this, add that I, I think um, that grounding would, would play into that as well. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. actually actually go hug a tree. <laughs> I was just going to yeah. say that. Ground yourself out. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Well, myself, it's interesting. Oh, I was just going to say, I know for myself, like, um, you know, where I live uh, is uh, 
somewhat like we don't have mountains, but it's hilly. Um, and we have a lot of trees and there's a lot of water. And I've just throughout my life have come to discover that that's what I need to, to feel at home. Um, you know, I know that there's a lot of people that like the high desert. I know there's a lot of people that like urban environments and to each their own. But for me, like when I'm in a city, I just feel off. Uh, and if I'm, if I'm out in like a wide open space, like in Iowa, I just don't, I don't feel comfortable. I don't like it. I need like trees and water and hills. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, um, just a, a personal example, I guess. Well, they said in the article that spending time among trees and other vegetation reduces stress and actually eases brain fatigue mm-hmm. and lowers, you know, cortisol, a stress related hormone. And so, you know, yeah. I, I agree, like hug a tree. Sometimes I feel so silly, like I'm outside and I just, it's like that, just hug that tree, just hug it, <laughs> hug that tree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and practice gratitude in the moment of hugging the tree, you know, like, and, and don't worry if somebody walks by and goes, okay, that person's hugging the tree. <laughs> Come, hug the tree with me. (laughs) Well, that's the thing about being in nature. Like, I'm looking out the windows now, and all I can see is green. And it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. When you go out in nature, you're kind of put in this position where you pretty much have no choice but to reflect on it and to look at the beauty all around you. And it's hard to really get wrapped up in city life when you're out, you know, hugging trees. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was like when you had Yaro Mate. Uh, was that his name? Yaro, the the herbalist. Yaro uh, Willard. Yeah, Yaro, Yaro Willard. Yaro Mate. Yeah. I'm <laughs> mixing too many different guys together. But how he said just uh, going on a walk and observing everything, observing you know the flowers and the grass and and the smells and the sounds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, just connecting the dots with that last article we were talking about, the channeling of universal energy. I mean, in that article, they mentioned that the ancients looked at trees as antenna. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so, and they're, they're kind of antenna for receiving universal energy, but at the same time for um, transmitting earth energy out to the universe. Um, so, I mean, be, being amongst these antenna, maybe you're more exposed to that kind of universal energy. Mm-hmm. And that just makes me think of, uh, of of the Gurdjieff from Raviev type stuff where they talk about how organic life on Earth, its whole purpose is kind of like a, a film over the planet that communicates so that we can, like the, the organic life serves that function of, you know, transmitting that universal energy to the planet. Going way out left field here maybe, but uh, so I, I, just, I just think it's it's kind of interesting to look at this from a perspective of yes it is very calming very nice to be in nature but there might actually be a lot more going on here under the Mm -hmm. surface yeah yeah there was another article connected to that hiking in nature is cleansing to the mind body and soul and um Mm -hmm. kind of addressing what we were talking about earlier this idea of rumination you know like where you're sitting inside and you're ruminating um, this article talks about mm. hi- how hiking in nature can reduce that, you know what I mean? And, and you know, we find ourselves kind of consumed by negative thoughts that to just get out and start walking, it actually slows that uh, rumination. And in a study um, that was 
published in the Proceedings of Natural Academy of Science, uh, found that spending time in nature decreases these obsessive negative thoughts by a significant margin. So um, hmm. they found that people who walked for 90 minutes in nature in a natural environment reported lower levels of rumination, and they also had reduced neural activity in the subgenial prefrontal cortex, or the area of the brain that's related to mental illness. <clears throat> and, and they talk about how uh, increased urbanization correlates to increased instances of depression and mental illness. So it's kind of all ties together what we were talking about throughout this show is like disconnecting from technology and reconnecting with nature, you know, getting that, <clears throat> that high from your, your outdoor environment. Yeah, and you kind of don't even have to think about it. Nature, by its very nature, kind of puts you in that state (laughs) where you're reflecting Mm -hmm. on the beauty that's all around you. Mm -hmm. But there was another article that was talking about getting high on dirt. And there's actually Mm. a bacteria in the dirt that helps your body release dopamine. So if you're a gardener, you know, I'm not really a gardener. I planted a few shrubs here and there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a few flowers. <laughs> but uh, the hardcore gardeners, I mean, they're really into it. And you got to think, okay, what are they getting out of it? And it's not just because they're outside in nature. Maybe they're actually getting something, you know, some kind of physical, physical. boost from it mm-hmm. that they can't really articulate. But then science explains that the bacteria in the dirt can actually raise your dopamine levels. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's not, not like just like getting out in nature. It's not like just getting out in nature and, and kind of looking around, but it's almost like getting nature into you. You yeah. know what I mean? You're actually out there experiencing it and kind of exchanging with nature. And, you know, I'm not necessarily suggesting anybody go out there and start eating dirt, but like, <laughs> you know, get your hands dirty. Get maybe that can explain why well. maybe. Dogs like to roll around in the dirt, take a little <laughs> dirt bath. You see animals mm. in nature doing that all the time. Sure. Yeah, dogs roll in a lot of stuff, though, so I don't know if all <laughs> it's necessarily. I used to have a dog that we went uh, we went camping one time, and this and my dog found a dead fish, and we didn't know where it was, but he kept on coming back smelling like dead fish because he would, as soon as we washed him off, he would run back out and find it and roll in it again. So, well, dogs have a very super heightened sense fish. of smell, so maybe they can smell the mm. special mycobacterium that's in it. <laughs> I'm just speculating here, but (laughs) they're building their immune systems. (laughs) Well, they also have a lot of studies about kids growing up on farms and being exposed to dirt and bacteria and even dogs Mm -hmm. and that it it reduces asthma, you know, and the kids are calmer, especially with children with ADHD, you know, getting them outside and letting them, you know, earth or ground or just connect with that environment you know Mm -hmm. because we tend to live in such an artificial environment and you know people are so busy 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 that you know i drive here i go home i go to the office there there's really you know it's funny that you have to have articles like this come out to remind you to do what people did for eons Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and we've dwelled on this on the show many times before, but, you know, the overprotective parents these days where they don't want their kids to touch 
virginity, quote unquote, the mm-hmm. overuse of antibacterial soaps and all these kinds of things like this idea that people need to be sealed in this hermetically sealed environment where nothing, no possible bacteria could ever harm them. It's just, it's such a delusional viewpoint that, mm-hmm. you know, let your kids play in the dirt for crying out loud. They're doing themselves some good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. 100%. I know for myself, I, I get, I get kind of OCD about like, uh, chemicals, you know, cleaning chemicals and stuff. And I'll like kind of frantically wash my hands after, you know, using 409 or something like that. But, uh, I don't have that same reaction if I'm out like in the woods or in the dirt or like gardening, you know, if I get dirty from the ground, I don't have that same kind of, uh, panicked, like I need to clean myself feeling, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have that same ick factor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've known very old farmers that will cut themselves while working in the field and their remedy is to take dirt and rub it in the wound. Mm. Whoa, is, really? Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of goes back to what Tiffany talks about, about that beneficial microbe in there. I mean, you know, if you're living in a super polluted environment, that <laughs> might not be the best thing to do. But, you know, with kids, it's like, clean it out, clean it out, you mm-hmm. know. And, I mean, there yeah. may be something to that. It, it's an old farmer's tale. Yeah, you don't want to be rubbing glyphosate into your wounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely not. <laughs> As along similar lines, he had mentioned dogs. Um, I, ha- I had a friend who, whose uncle had hunting dogs, and he, went, if he had cut himself, would let the dogs lick the wound until mm. they licked it clean, hmm. and then it would heal, you know. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Get out, get dirty, play with your dogs. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, let's see. Let's talk. You know, we're we're kind of nearing the end of our time, but I think that we have some time to go over our last couple topics here. Um, the power of silence is something that we had wanted to uh, talk about, and I think it's a really interesting topic. Um, there's this article: "Silence is much more important to our brains than we think," <clears throat> and it's one of the. Uh, if you're looking at the SOT Radio page, one of our images in the slideshow there is. Uh, mice exposed to two hours of silence per day develop new cells in the hippocampus, a region of the brain associated with memory, emotion, and learning. Um, and I, this is something that I struggle with uh, personally too, just because I know I've, I've always got to have like, you know, a podcast or some, something going like, it helps me to have like a, a fan while I'm sleeping. And hmm. this, these are, these are habits of mine, you know, but every once in a while it occurs to me like, you know, my do I really need the the noise, the background noise, like what's going on in my head that I can't listen to or deal with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, that kind of thing drives me nuts. Actually, I don't think you and I would make very compatible roommates. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I had a, I had a I had a roommate at one point who always would have like the news or some kind of thing on in the background, like mm-hmm. all the time, and it drove mm-hmm. me insane. It's like, can't we just have some silence? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting though. Like I think, I think you need to put silence into perspective in some ways because I think realistically there is no such thing as absolute silence. 
Um, I mean, if you think mm-hmm. about our evolutionary background and we're out in nature, I mean, when you're out in nature, there's, there is no real silence. Yeah, like you can you. listen and there's always like birds or crickets or, you know, even if you don't hear any of that, there's the wind, there's like, there's always some kind of thing going on. So I think it's, it's more about decreasing noise mm-hmm. and like kind of the, the, the human created kind of, um, I don't know, background constant noise that's there and when you're in an urban environment you kind of learn to turn it tune it out but you've always got traffic you've always got construction you always got neighbors like all this kind of like noise in the background mm-hmm. and i think that 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 what, what they're talking about here is kind of like getting getting a chance to get away from that yeah that's why i don't mm-hmm. like alarm clocks <laughs> oh dear do i yeah i don't want anything jarring me out of my sleep they're just too mm. Too noisy, I guess. Um, but in the article, they said that silence releases tension, and it can be more relaxing than an equal amount of music. Like, say you spent two minutes just being in the quiet or in nature, which isn't necessarily silent, but comparatively mm-hmm. silent. But they mm-hmm. said it can be more relaxing than the equal amount of music. And I used to be like, if I went for a walk in the woods somewhere, I always want, want to wear my headphones and listen to some music. But now I don't do that mm-hmm. anymore. I want to hear the wind rustling through the leaves and hear the birds and the crickets and furry things running around in the leaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. And that, that seems to be kind of epidemic as well. Like every person you see around has headphones plugged in like all the time. It's like just this wanting to tune out everything that's around them. I've never really been that kind of person, so I don't really relate to it, but it seems like, especially the younger generation, always with the headphones in, always. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, in that article, uh, too, too, they talked about Florence Nightingale, the 19th century British nurse and social activist. And she wrote that unnecessary noise is the most cruel absence of care that can be inflicted on the sick or the well. Mm. That uh, mm. She argued that needless sounds cause distress, sleep loss, and alarm for recovering patients. Yeah, so hospitals mm. aren't a great place to get sleep, that is for sure. Like, if you ever have to go to a hospital, try to get as far away from the nurse's station as possible. Uh, yeah. Yet another reason hospitals are not the best for healing. No. Yeah. In our uh, in our uh, chat room here, somebody had just said noise is used as a torture, and I think that's an interesting thing that, that it is. It's a common... Uh, torture device, you know, mm-hmm. is is loud music, uh, blaring, grating yeah. sounds, you know. Um, yeah. But then there's also there's also sensory deprivation too, which, uh, but that's different, I think, than what we're talking about. Because Doug, you made that point that you know there's never true absence of of sound. Uh, it's maybe more mm-hmm. about just being being with what's around you. Um, and mm-hmm. another person in the chat room made the point that. Uh, you know, the point is to be able to hear your own thoughts and not distract yourself with noise or music. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's, mm. you know, perhaps that's why. Um, and like I said, I, you know, this is something I struggle with too, like uh, always listening to a podcast, having something going. Um, uh, it's the, it, like internal dialogue that, and it's, it's a weakness of mine. And, uh, you know, I, I try to work on it, but I'm not always successful. 
to be able to just sit. And then all of a sudden, like my mind starts to race and I'm like, Oh crap, I have to deal with yeah. this now. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. But I wonder, well, one, I wonder one if one of the, the articles, Oh, I, Sorry, I wonder going. if the young, I wonder if the younger generation is more, more susceptible to that because of, you know, the, the EMF pollution, the entertainment, the kind of, uh, mm. vapid culture that we're surrounded by maybe, maybe have a, a higher level of, uh, of anxiety and, and thoughts that they're compelled to tune out, you know? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that, uh, one of the comments in the chat, um, said perhaps meditation is a good form of silence, internal silence. Mm-hmm. And I think one, one of the articles we read was actually talking about that, that part of the noise that we're constantly exposed to is just within ourselves, that, that, mm-hmm. that constant rumination or, um, you know, anxiety or, or whatever, those constant thought loops that are always going. Um, part of, I think, enjoying silence is also kind of, you know, using a way of kind of, of, of stopping those internal dialogues as well. And I mean, I don't think there's any way, well, maybe for yogis or something like that to have, to have absolute internal silence, but, uh, the, uh, you know, the idea that you can kind of just quiet that stuff and, and maybe, um, be a little bit more in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That being said, so music is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good segue. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> yeah, one of our articles was about how choral singing bro- boosts mood, immune function, and reduces stress. So do any mm. of you sing in a choir? <laughs> Not currently, yeah, but I know. used to. <laughs> like in oh, elementary cool. school and in junior high school. It was fun. Uh, you yeah, know, I, singing stimulates your vagus nerve, so it, mm-hmm. it'll to, uh, reduce your stress. And plus, it's just fun, especially if you get a nice, yeah. good song. You can hold some notes, even if you don't I sound that good. <laughs> yeah. I used to be in a choir, too, and I, I remember I had a lot of teen angst at that time, and I just remember thinking, all these people are so annoyingly happy. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess I wasn't experiencing that at the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's yep. this the article about the choral singing. There's this one. He's obviously insane, but he's a psychologist named Steven Pinker, and he said that music is a spandrel, which is a useless evolutionary byproduct of another useful trait. And he said that music. Mm is just something that took off from language and it provides no advantage and serves no purpose. <laughs> and I, I just disagree. want to slap his face. Yeah, I disagree with that too. Yeah. I've heard someone say the same thing about dancing too. That dancing <laughs> is just completely useless. There's no reason to actually do it. Those people just sound like stick in the muds. Yeah. yeah. Sound like yeah. soulless robots. I yeah. can definitely attest. To it's it. expressive. Yeah, I can definitely attest to that now. Like, um, I'm an amateur musician, you know, guitar player and write some songs and I haven't played out in, in a while, but, um, there is nothing quite like the feeling of getting into a song and singing it and, and, and hitting it, mm-hmm. you know, and like when you're, when you're, mm-hmm. when you're getting it right and you're in the flow, um, and you're feeling the melody and like the sound, the vibration is coming out of your throat. Like it's, uh, it really is, um, it's quite a thing. Yeah, I had one of those experiences oh, last week. I, 
on taking a long drive back from the airport. <laughs> I was just singing. Mm-hmm. Well, I sing mm-hmm. a, a decent amount of the time anyway, but this time I like totally got into it. And I was like, oh my God, I felt like my body was vibrating. <laughs> it's like, wow, that song was awesome. And it was just yeah. a song called The Golden Time of Day. And he was just singing about the sunrise and the sunset and happy people and feelings and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, rock out. <laughs> well, there was another article on Sod actually called The Magic of Music is the Bomb for the Body and Soul. And it goes through nine different points where there's been studies that have found how music can be beneficial. And I'll just go through them quickly here. But uh, music helps control blood pressure and heart-related disorders. Listening and playing music helps treat stress and depression. Music therapy helps treat Alzheimer's disease. Studying music boosts academic achievement in high schoolers. Playing guitar and other instruments aids in treating PTSD. Uh, Studying music boosts brain development in young children. Music education helps children improve reading skills. Listening to music helps improve sleep. And playing didgeridoo helps treat sleep apnea. Wow. That was really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it applies to all wind instruments. It's kind of hard to get your hands on a real nice didgeridoo. But you might be able to get a flute (laughs) from somewhere and help your sleep apnea. Yeah, I wonder what the mechanism is there. Well, I know to play the didgeridoo, you have to do round breathing. Mm. Uh, well, it says sure. that it strengthens your pharyngeal muscles in your throat, mm-hmm. and that's tied to sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. But there was this really beautiful video embedded in that article where this lady was working at a nursing home, and there was this old guy, you know, his head down. He barely put out two words, and they gave him headphones of music that he used to listen to when he was growing up, when he was younger, like big band and uh, he just his eyes lit up and he was able to talk in full sentences and, you know, talk about why he loved music and what he liked about it. It was really nice. Hmm. Well, it yeah, does he was seem an like Alzheimer's it, patient, I think. Yeah, it does seem like a like an evolutionary thing. Like, I'm just going to use a really cheesy example. But during Christmas, you know, you go into a store and there's they're playing Christmas music. And as much as you try and not sing along, you find yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, you know, it's also a way to bond. Mm. That's one of the reasons I like Christmas so much. Not because presents. I don't even care about presents anymore. But sitting around and singing Christmas carols. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess, again, we come back to uh, the idea of balance, you know, so silence is really important and music is really important and, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, find striking a, a balance between the two. Yeah. Yeah, I find sometime when I'm in silence that I start humming to myself, <laughs> not because mm-hmm. I need to hear um, anything necessarily, but it's almost like this internal need to like maybe vibrate with the universe. I would do that too. Like when I worked in hospitals and it was like a really stressful day, I would just start humming. (laughs) It's probably some subconscious effort to stimulate my vagus nerve, but it did make me feel better. (laughs) Like whistling when you walk through a graveyard. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, there's one comment yeah. in the chat actually that says that uh, um, I think it is because music connects. Mm-hmm. And that was actually one thing that was mentioned in the choral singing uh, article we were talking about is that there's there's a sense of community there as well. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like everybody's there cooperating in a in a, in a you know some kind of project that uh, that everybody is working together on. And uh, so the community, and I mean, I guess getting together collectively and stimulating your vagus nerve and um, activating that parasympathetic nervous system is certainly part of it, but just, you know, connecting with people and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sharing something I think is Mm -hmm. important. Yeah. If Mm -hmm. you're all singing together and you're maybe harmonizing or tuning in with each other, that's a way of Mm. increasing your frequency, resonance, vibration with other people. Mm -hmm. Same with Mm -hmm. dancing too. If you're doing the same moves, the same dances. Mm. Limbic resonance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, talking about connection, that kind of brings me to uh, one of our one of our last articles here. Um, we were talking about you know the idea of self improvement and things that you can do, and you know so we've been touching on that topic. But um, this article, friendships are better than drugs for taking pain away, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, that was kind of interesting. <laughs> Um, as long as you're not Austria. doing drugs with your friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah <right. laughs> Sorry, I had to light the right up. kind of friends. <laughs> Subtitle, friends are better to do drugs with. <laughs> Get high with a little no. help from your friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, this Oxford, Oxford, Oxford University researchers have found that people with more friends have higher pain tolerance. And... Uh, Mm-hmm. That that's kind of interesting, you know, because especially considering, you know, the um, the uh, the, preve- the prevalence of uh, Facebook, you know, now and the, the how friends, the word friend has become associated with Facebook and social networks, um, mm-hmm. online social networks, you know, and it's like you you friend somebody or you unfriend somebody, and it's just I don't know, I I, I can't help but feeling that it's taken the the oomph out of the word it's it's mm-hmm. uh it's almost you know corrupted that in our in, in that meaning in our mind <laughs> mm-hmm. well, well i, I would I, I would speculate in- and i don't know obviously but i would speculate that that facebook friends probably don't give you the same kind of biochemical um reaction no. that an actual friend does like face to face like chatting right. with somebody on facebook i i would imagine is not uh, you're not getting the same kind of social bonding um, cues that you get um, when you're actually face to face with somebody and hanging out and mm-hmm. sharing a laugh. You know, those those things I think are 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 what really is missing from that whole social network um, mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. I think the good thing about Facebook is if you already have established these real life bonds with people and you move away from Mm -hmm. each other is a good way to stay connected in that way and might give Mm -hmm. you the same kind of boost if you already knew them in real life and you're now chatting with them on Facebook because they live in Hawaii or wherever but uh, that's Mm -hmm. the only good thing that I can see about Facebook that and you know sharing articles here and there but according to this article I looked into the study that they did and I think they should have said that the stronger thighs you have, the more pain tolerance you have. Because how they tested the pain tolerance is they had this big group of people, like 107 people of 18 to 34-year-olds, and they made them do the wall sit test 
like when you put your back up against oh. the wall and you squat down, and they made them hold it until they couldn't hold it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so the ones who could tolerate Jeez. more pain, I guess they got the highest score, but, you know, I think it should have been stronger thighs, better pain tolerance. <laughs> Well, maybe people with more friends have stronger size. <laughs> well, also, well, I think there's a slippery slope there, too, because, you know, if it, it, like you were saying, Jonathan, about what um, it's the definition of a true friend. And, mm-hmm. you know, if we hold on to these relationships with people that we think are friends but are not, you know, to have that discernment. Mm -hmm. And when you're around people that you call friends and you feel exhausted and drained afterwards, maybe that's something to look at. (laughs) (laughs) But that uh, people that you're around that generally make you feel better or you can have deep, meaningful conversations with and um, have that bonding, that social bonding, which is is you know and in, in a few of those articles they talk about how isolation is is so prevalent in this time too and and a lot of people don't have that so maybe it's better to just have one good friend than a bunch of shabby friends <laughs> yeah. well we are uh, we're getting close to our our time here do you guys want to go to uh Zoya's segment. She's got some some kind of fun, joyful stuff uh, for us today. Okay. Um, then Great. when we come back from that, we'll have a, a recipe to wrap up. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. In today's segment, I'm going to share with you a couple of interesting news items about one of the most popular dog breeds and something else curious and cute. So the most popular dog breed appears to be Labrador Retriever. And most who have these dogs as their companions will agree that labs also have another name, canine vacuum cleaners. But no one knew for sure what Labradors are so fixed on eating everything around them. Why Labrador's retrievers love food so much or anything else that they can swallow? Now there is an answer. New research shows that apparently Labrador and flat coat retrievers, which are related to Labrador retrievers, are unable to produce two substances usually involved in turning off hunger after a meal, the neuropeptides beta-MSH and beta-endorphin. The mutation appears to be specific to Labradors and flat coat retrievers and correlates with an increased tendency toward food-motivated behavior. The researchers say that there is a hardwired biological reason for the dog's food obsession. Although the team observed many dogs in the study that were obsessed with food but did not have the mutation. Another interesting fact is that labs that are chosen as assistant dogs are also more likely to have this variation offering a potential explanation as to why these breeds appear to be more trainable with food rewards. Apparently, 76% of Labrador assistant dogs have this deletion. Uh, This surprised the researchers who speculate that the Labrador's interest in food 
could be what makes them more suitable for assistant dog training, as these tend to involve uh, food rewards. Confirmation of this could come by looking at puppies and finding out whether these with a mutation are more likely to qualify as assistant dog. What, did it, what does this study imply for owners of Labrador Retrievers? The behavior of dogs carrying this mutation is different. You can keep a dog with this mutation slim, but you have to be more on the ball. You have to be more rigorous about portion control, and you have to be more resistant to your dog giving you the big brown eyes. If you keep a really uh, food-motivated Labrador slim, you should give yourself a pet on the back because it's much harder for you than it is for someone with a less food-motivated dog. But of course, it also means that you should appreciate your furry body even more because clearly not being an animal vacuum cleaner requires a serious exercise of will and literally going against the genetic predisposition. Next item is about retrievers also, specifically golden retrievers, but unfortunately the news isn't particularly positive. Apparently golden retrievers have the highest risk for cancer among all dog breeds. As it happens, the smaller the dog, the lower the risk, the risk of cancer. In fact, the rate of cancer in small dogs like Chihuahua and Maltese is less than 10%. Scientists believe a hormone that influences bone and tissue growth, which exists at a lower level in smaller breeds, may be a factor. But here is something important to keep in mind. Surprisingly, the high rate of cancer in Goldens is a fairly recent development. In a 1988 University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine study, Goldens weren't mentioned as having a higher rate of cancer than other breeds. However, just 11 years later, in 1999, over 60% of these dogs in U.S. alone uh, were being lost to cancer. Another fact is that European-bred golden retrievers develop cancer at a much lower rate, under 40% than U.S. goldens. Their genes are significantly different, which suggests the risk of cancer in American goldens is the result in part of a fairly recent gene mutation. Researchers studying cancer in the breed have identified genetic alterations common to goldens with hemangiosarcoma and lymphoma. These gene mutations modify the regulation of the immune system surveillance for tumor cells. Now, researchers say that it happens due to strict breeding regulations and rules, and this creates an isolated, closed population of dogs within each breed, which keeps the gene pool small. In addition, there is something called the popular sire effect, wherein uh, certain dogs are bred over and over again. But surely nutrition and maintenance play a large role in developing cancer too. Therefore, here are five things you can do in order to lower the chances of your golden retriever of developing cancer. So, don't, don't allow your dog to become overweight. Feed an anti-inflammatory, natural and species-appropriate diet. Reduce or eliminate your dog's exposure to toxins. Allow your dog to remain intact, not neutered or spayed, at least until the age of 18 months or 
up to two years and refuse a necessary vaccination or a necessary combination of vaccines. So that's it for news items about dogs. And the final news item is about something called cute aggression or why seeing cuties makes us want to give them a gigantic squeeze. New research by two Yale uh, University psychologists details how the sight of something cute brings out our aggressive side. Researchers investigated cute aggression by showing study participants slideshows of cute, funny, or normal animal photographs. As they watched, the participants held bubble wrap. The researchers, attempting to mimic the common desire to squeak cute things, told subjects to pop as many or as few bubbles as they wanted. People watching the cute slideshow popped significantly more bubbles than those viewing the funny or controlled pictures. Researchers concluded that some things are so cute that we just can't stand it. Cute aggression's prevalence does not mean that people actually want to harm cuddly creatures. Rather, the response could be protective, or it could be the brain's way of tamping down or venting extreme feelings of giddiness and happiness. The scientists are currently conducting additional studies to determine what drives the need to squeeze. Well, this is it for today. Hope that you found the information interesting. Have a nice weekend with a lot of uh, giddy and cute moments. And goodbye. <laughs> I've got some cute aggression towards those goats. <laughs> Maybe yeah, the totally. Yellowstone tourists had cute aggression against that baby bison. Maybe. <laughs> Quick, throw it in the car. <laughs> it's so cute. <laughs> well, thanks, Zoya. That was good. Um, we've got a, uh, a recipe for today, which is uh, somebody had posted on the forum, and I uh, made this, and uh, it came out uh, well, but it's interesting. Um, so... Before I get into the weirdness about it, uh, chocolate and chocolate gelatin squares. Chocolate um, squares. Chocolate squares. So this makes two eight by eight, eight by eight inch pans, um, or you know one larger eight by sixteen inch pan. Um, and of course, you can experiment depending on how thick you want them to be. Uh, but it, it was pretty easy. Uh, to make. So you need six tablespoons of gelatin, one cup of cold water, two cups of cocoa powder, two cups of coconut oil. Um, now the recipe calls for two thirds cup of raw honey or maple syrup, but I used a tablespoon of stevia, uh, and that worked out well. Um, of course you can use your own calculations if you want to substitute like erythritol or sorbitol or anything like that. Um, so, but I guess if you want to work off of, of, uh, the measurement of, uh, you know, just shy of a cup of, uh, of sugar, whatever that translates to, uh, for me, that was a tablespoon of stevia, uh, two tablespoons of, uh, vanilla and two and a half cups of boiling water. So first of all, you place the gelatin and the cold water into a blender and let it sit for about five minutes 
Now you may want to go a little bit less than five minutes. I did the full five minutes and it was almost impossible to blend at that point. It had gelled mm-hmm. up and it wouldn't actually blend. So the goal I think is just to hydrate the gelatin, uh, essentially. Um, then add all the other ingredients except the boiling water. Uh, and you want to kind of melt your coconut oil. So in a pan on the side, or if you want to microwave it, just get the coconut oil soft, uh, or, you know, even liquidy, um, before you mix it in. And with the volume of this recipe, I also found I have like this standard, you know, four or five cup blender and it filled it all the way to the top and it was really hard to get everything in there. So I actually ended up putting everything into a bowl and using a, a hand mixer instead of the blender. Um, so you might want to do a half of the recipe or, um, you know, do part, you know, half at a time or just do it in a bowl with a mixer uh, instead. So you add all the other ingredients except the boiling water, uh, including the coconut oil. Um, blend it all together and then add the boiling water. Very last, uh, you want to minimize the time of the boiling water in the blender. I think that's partially just so it doesn't, like, explode on you. But that was um, also... It, it, it was easier to do in, in a bowl with a mixer. So uh, blend everything together. Um, be careful not to have it splash up. Uh, and then basically just pour it into a, a greased pan. Um, I actually put uh, parchment paper down in the pan and then poured it into that. Um, that made it easier to kind of peel out. And then you let it settle in the fridge. Um, and I want to say it took about an hour and a half, maybe two hours uh, to really settle and become solidified. Um, and then you take it out and cut it into squares. And what you end up with is essentially chocolate jello. Um, and it's, it, this is where it's strange. Uh, <laughs> I found that when, when I took a bite of it, my, my subconscious mind was expecting a brownie and the, the tech, the texture of the gelatin was like, uh, it was kind of weird, but once you get, once you get over that, it's very good. <laughs> um, so it, it's a uh, it's a good source of fat and a good source of gelatin because you have a lot of gelatin in there, um, and it's tasty. Um, and I also noticed that I got uh, quite an energy kick out of it, and I'm not oh, sure okay. if that was like the the cocoa, maybe like the theobromine in the cocoa. Two um, cups of cocoa, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you do the recipe with butter? Uh, you know, I didn't try that, but you probably could. Mm-hmm. You probably could, yeah. So just real quick, of that was six tablespoons of gelatin, one cup of cold water, two cups of cocoa powder, two cups of coconut oil, um, your sweetener equivalent to two-thirds a cup of sugar. So, you know, I used a tablespoon of stevia, um, two tablespoons of pure vanilla, and two and a half cups of boiling water. Um, so I would encourage you guys to try it out. Uh, the... the uh, they come out pretty good, and there's a nice aftertaste from the, the cocoa and the coconut oil, mm. um, and they're easy to carry around. They stay solid at room temp, which is nice because my homemade <laughs> chocolate doesn't do that. <laughs> so that's the recipe for today. Sounds good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds weird, but good, too. It is. <laughs> <laughs> It is. I don't want to. I don't want to discourage people because of the weirdness. It is strange, though. But I definitely try it out. Mm. Invite friends over and do a taste test. <laughs> yeah. 
Or better yet, give it to one of your friends and tell them it's a brownie and then watch their face. <laughs> Psych. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, um, I guess that's, that's our show for today. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Thanks to our chat participants for uh, taking part in that. And uh, really appreciate everybody uh, listening to the show. Hopefully we we touched on some happy topics today. Um, mm. We will be we'll be back next uh, next Friday. We're working on a on a guest for the show, but I don't know if we'll have that person by by next Friday or not. But definitely stay tuned. Um, and be sure to listen to uh, the Truth Perspective on Sunday at noon Eastern time on radio.sot.net. Uh, no matter what your time zone is, just check radio.sot.net and you can see uh, the the airtime for that. Um, and that's it. So thanks, guys, and uh, have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye, Bye everybody.